A Mysterious Visit by Mark Twain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. A Mysterious Visit by Mark Twain. The first notice that was taken of me when I settled down recently was by a gentleman who said he was an assessor and connected with the U.S. Internal Revenue Department. I said I had never heard of his branch of business before, but I was very glad to see him all the same. Would he sit down? He sat down. I did not know anything particular to say, and yet I felt that people who have arrived at the dignity of keeping house must be conversational, must be easy and sociable in company. So in default of anything else to say, I asked him if he was opening his shop in our neighborhood. He said he was. I did not wish to appear ignorant, but I had hoped he would mention what he had for sale. I ventured to ask him, how was trade? And he said, so-so. I then said we would drop in, and if we liked his house as well as any other, we would give him our custom. He said he thought we would like his establishment well enough to confine ourselves to it said he never saw anybody who would go off and hunt up another man in his line after trading with him once. That sounded pretty complacent, but barring that natural expression of villainy which we all have, the man looked honest enough. I do not know how it came about exactly, but gradually we appeared to melt down and run together, conversationally speaking, and then everything went along as comfortably as clockwork. We talked and talked and talked, at least I did and we laughed and laughed and laughed, at least he did. But all the time I had my presence of mind about me. I had my native shrewdness turned on full head, as the engineers say. I was determined to find out all about his business in spite of his obscure answers, and I was determined I would have it out of him without his suspecting what I was at. I meant to trap him with a deep, deep ruse. I would tell him all about my own business, and he would naturally so warm to me during this seductive burst of confidence that he would forget himself and tell me about his affairs before he suspected what I was about. I thought to myself, my son, you little know what an old fox you are dealing with. I said, now you would never guess what I made lecturing this winter and last spring. No, don't believe I could to save me. Let me see, let me see. Uh, about two thousand dollars, maybe? But but no, no, sir. Uh, I know you couldn't have made that much. Say seventeen hundred, maybe. Ha <laughs> ha! I knew you couldn't. My lecturing receipts for last spring and winter were fourteen thousand seven hundred and fifty dollars. What do you think of that? Why, it's amazing. Perfectly amazing. I will make a note of it. And you say even this wasn't all? All? Why, bless you. There was my income from the daily war whoop for four months, about, about, well, what should you say to about $8,000, for instance? Say, why, I should say I should like to see myself rolling in just such another ocean of affluence. $8,000. i will make a note of it. Why, man, and on top of all this, am I to understand that you still had more income? <laughs> why, you're only in the suburbs of it, so to speak. There's my book, The Innocents Abroad, price three fifty to five dollars according to the binding. Listen to me. Look me in the eye. During the last four months and a half, saying nothing of sales before that, but just simply during the four months and a half, we've sold 95,000 copies of that book. 
Ninety-five thousand. Think of it. Average four dollars a copy. Say, it's nearly four hundred thousand dollars, my son. I get half. The suffering Moses. I'll set that down. Fourteen, seven, fifty-eight, two hundred total. Say, well, upon my word, the grand total is about two hundred and thirteen or fourteen thousand dollars. Is that possible? Possible. If there's any mistake, it's the other way. Two hundred and fourteen thousand cash is my income for this year, if I know how to cipher. Then the gentleman got up to go. It came over me most uncomfortably that maybe I had made my revelations for nothing. Besides being flattered into stretching them considerably by the stranger's astonished exclamations. But no, at the last moment the gentleman handed me a large envelope and said it contained his advertisement and that I would find out all about his business in it and that he would be happy to have my custom, would be in fact proud to have the custom of a man of such prodigious income, and that he used to think there were several wealthy men in the city, but when they came to trade with him he discovered that they barely had enough to live on, and that in truth it had been such a weary, weary age since he had seen a rich man face to face and talked to him and touched him with his hands that he could hardly refrain from embracing me in fact would esteem it in great favor if I would let him embrace me. This so pleased me that I did not try to resist, but allowed this simple-hearted stranger to throw his arms about me and weep a few tranquilizing tears down the back of my neck. Then he went his way. As soon as he was gone I opened his advertisement. I studied it attentively for four minutes. I then called upon the cook and said, Hold me while I faint. Let Marie turn the griddle cakes. By and by, when I came to, I sent down to the rum mill on the corner and hired an artist by the week to sit up nights and curse that stranger and give me a lift occasionally in the daytime when I came to a hard place. Ah, what a miscreant he was! His advertisement was nothing in the world but a wicked tax return, a string of impertinent questions about my private affairs, occupying the best part of four fool's cap pages of fine print questions. I may remark, gotten up with such marvelous ingenuity, that the oldest man in the world couldn't understand what the most of them were driving at. Questions, too, that were calculated to make a man report about four times his actual income to keep from swearing to a falsehood. I looked for a loophole, but there did not appear to be any. Inquiry number one covered my case as generously and as amply as an umbrella could cover an anthill. What were your profits during the past year from any trade, business, or vocation wherever carried on? And that inquiry was backed up by thirteen others of an equally searching nature, the most modest of which required information as to whether I had committed any burglary or highway robbery, or by any arson or other secret source of emolument had acquired property which was not enumerated in my statement of income as set opposite to inquiry number one. It was plain that the stranger had enabled me to make a goose of myself. It was very, very plain, and so I went out and hired another artist. By working on my vanity, the stranger had seduced me into declaring an income of $214,000. By law, $1,000 of this was exempt from income tax. The only relief I could see, and it was only a drop in the ocean, at the legal 5%, I must pay the government the sum of $10,650 income tax. I may remark in this place that I did not do it. I am acquainted with a very opulent man, whose house is a palace, whose table is regal, whose outlays are enormous, yet a man who has no income, as I have often noticed by the revenue returns. And to him I went for advice in my distress. He took my dreadful exhibition of receipts, he put on his glasses, he took his pen, and presto, 
I was a pauper. It was the neatest thing that ever was. He did it simply by deftly manipulating the bill of deductions. He set down my state, national, and municipal taxes at so much, my losses by shipwreck, fire, etc., at so much, my losses on sales of real estate, on livestock sold, on payments for rent of homestead, on repairs, improvements, interest, on previously taxed salary as an officer of the United States Army, Navy, Revenue Service, and other things. He got astonishing deductions out of each and every one of these matters, each and every one of them. And when he was done, he handed me the paper, and I saw at a glance that during the year my income in the way of profits had been $1,250.40. Now, said he, the thousand dollars is exempt by law. What you want to do is go and swear this document in and pay tax on the $250. While he was making this speech, his little boy Willie lifted a two-dollar greenback out of his vest pocket and vanished with it. And I would wager anything that if my stranger were to call on that little boy tomorrow, he would make a false return of his income. Do you, said I, do you always work up the deductions after this fashion in your own case, sir? Well, I should say so. If it weren't for those eleven saving clauses under the head of deductions, I should be beggared every year to support this hateful and wicked, this extortionate and tyrannical government. This gentleman stands away up among the very best of the solid men of the city, the men of moral weight, of commercial integrity, of unimpeachable social spotlessness. And so I bowed to his example. I went down to the revenue office, and under the accusing eyes of my old visitor I stood up and swore to lie after lie, fraud after fraud, villainy after villainy, till my soul was coated inches and inches thick with perjury and my self-respect gone forever and ever. But what of it? It is nothing more than thousands of the richest and proudest and most respected, honored, and courted men in America do every year. And so I don't care. I am not ashamed. I shall simply for the present talk little and eschew fireproof gloves, lest I fall into certain dreadful habits irrevocably. End of A Mysterious Visit by Mark Twain